Before we get started today, I just want to remind everybody, if you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, review, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Lebitard underscore fan. I am really jazzed up for this episode. I had an awesome conversation with David Sampson about a whole range of topics that I think you all are really going to enjoy. So without further delay, let's get into the interview. This is the Fan Levitard Show. Welcome in to the Fan Levitard Show, episode number eight. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest with us here today. He is the former president of the Marlins. He is an Iron Man. He is a Survivor contestant. But most importantly, he is a Dan Levitard Show regular. You know him. You love him. Well, some of you might not love him. Give it up for David Sampson. David, welcome into the show today. I think more people may love me today than yesterday, but I'm not in the business of being fully loved. I'm in the business of uh, being fully thankful that people give me an opportunity on Nothing Personal and on Levitard show each week and Nothing Personal every day to talk and make people think and maybe learn something, but more importantly, just have information so they can form their own opinions about some funny stuff Well, you and can some now, serious stuff, actually. You can now add the fan Levitard show to that list as well of places that will give you a platform anytime. Um, and so there are a million places that I want to start this, but I feel like I need to start in the obvious place. David Sampson, you good? Am I what? Are you good? Am I good? Yeah, you good? I'm, I'm, I'm always good. I appreciate you asking. Are you good? I am good. You know what? Thank you. You're the first person who's actually asked it back. Well, I'm glad you're good. Now that we're both good, let's roll. Let's go. All right, do let's not? do this. So because this is a Dan Lebitard show fan podcast, I would mm -hmm. be remiss not to ask about Dan's current uh, career transition, let's say. And uh, today we learned some new information about Dan and John Skipper's new media venture, which we now know is going to be called Meadowlark Media. And apparently it's, quote, initially going to focus on sports, end quote. And I think that uh, that verbiage there is potentially kind of revealing and and where this thing could go but i just want your opinion on this what do you make of dan's pirate ship phase so far and how do you think that this meadowlark media is going to develop well, i think you have to go back and, and look at the career that dan has had you know he's not an overnight sensation he's been working hard and doing this for a very long time i was going on his show doing movie reviews in the early 2000s and he's always had the desire to be goofy and educational and opinionated and goofy and smart and educated and goofy. And to have that platform that he's now built to, to, to flex all of those creative muscles that he has, he wanted the ability to it's not be a pirate. I, I actually was talking to him and disagreeing with that concept. It's not really a pirate ship. It's a, it's a freedom ship <laughs> is what I would call it. And it's the, the freedom for him to be, you know, unshackled the way I feel. I can be on nothing personal having left Major League Baseball. It is incredibly, almost intoxicating to have the ability to use a platform like I have with CBS currently and, and Dan is now going to have even more freedom to 
flex those creative muscles to create content that he's so good at creating. So it's not just sports content. You stated something pretty interesting there. You said CBS currently. Um, is there any chance that David Sampson would be interested in joining Meadowlark Media in the future whenever a contract ends? Well, I would say this. It's what I say when you ask me whether or not a player can be traded. My answer is everybody can be traded, just some are more likely than others and some are less likely than others. And never say never. So I, I don't close the door on anything except, you know what? I, I, I Nothing. I was going to say I, I, I closed the door on nothing except being a president of a team again, but I'm not even closing that door because why would I say never? So I love working with Dan and with Mike and, and with Stu Gotts and, and with the rest of the Levitard family. I love being in that orbit because we have fun and it's creative and it is fulfilling. And I think that the audience finds it interesting. And, and that is the skill that Dan has is, is something that I try to emulate. And it is how very difficult it is to prepare to always look like you're unprepared. <laughs> yeah, and, real. right. Think about his show that you'd think it's everything off the top of his head. And, and, and he, he works really, really hard to entertain all of us. And I love being entertained by him and his crew. And I love being a part of that in any way that I can, because it's so much damn fun. So I just want to stick on this real quick. So, you know, I've listened to Nothing Personal with David Sampson. I encourage everyone on this podcast who listens to it to go check it out as well. Um, and it seems like you have a pretty wide lane to kind of do whatever you want to there. And I guess I'm curious, you know, would the additional freedom, if you can even call it that, at Meadowlark Media, um, is that the thing that really you think would drive you in that direction potentially? Or would it have to be something different? I think it's the ability to flex my own creative muscles. You know, I've, I've only been doing this. You know, Dan's a veteran of, of, you know, going on 20 years. And I've been doing this nothing personal for just over a year. So I really just started my, my career, uh, this second career, third career, fourth career, whatever you want to call the number of careers I've had. And I love this one the best out of anything I've ever done. But what's really great about me and I say this humbly, and I try to tell people, if you can be like this, you're going to be really happy. No matter what I've always done over my career, when I was doing it, I always thought that that was the greatest thing I'd ever done to that point. And that is a good feeling because it gets me up in the morning. It keeps me from going to bed at night because I have this amazing feeling of responsibility to the audience in a way that I felt responsible to Marlins fans and I let them down so much, but in the way I felt responsible to clients when I was on wall street, to the way I felt responsible to people who were reading my newspapers, just, I always feel responsible to people who are counting on me to do something. And now having a show, it, it's a big responsibility, but one that I absolutely crave, love, am addicted to, and uh, don't want to stop anytime soon. Well, David, now I have something to ask of you, and this is a big ask potentially, but I'm wondering if you have a particularly funny or entertaining story about Dan, Stu, your involvement with the show, anything in that universe that you have never before told to anyone and would like to reveal exclusively to this audience. Well, I guess 
it's been touched on a little bit. If I had to tell you that my relationship with the Levitard show is a very complicated one. And Dan has always championed my appearances on the show because it has nothing to do with our off off air relationship, actually. In, in some ways, there's a negative correlation between how close we are off the air and, and what he does to get me on the air with him. He purposefully removed himself from any of the decision making in terms of whether or not I would appear on his show because he didn't want to have the appearance that he was giving a friend airtime that was so hated in the in the city that he loves more than anything in the world, which is Miami. And so he removed himself and Mike Ryan and Stu Gotts and, and all of them, you know, Chris and Billy and all of them, it took years and years for them to get past the vomiting stage when I would appear on the show. Uh, and they were happy when I was off the show for a great number of years. And it took a tremendous amount of time to get back on the show because I think that they're also loyal to Miami, that they believe that I'm such a villain, but not a heel, just a true villain that people hated, that they were worried that they would get sucked into my evil orbit of <laughs> hatred and that it would impact their viewers and listeners. And only when the numbers got better, see, they pretend, they tell me, yeah, no, we love having you on now. You know, things are better and you've really, you know, you're not with the Marlins anymore and, and you uh, have a show that you do and blah, 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 blah. The reality is the only reason they're okay with me being on that show now is that people listen to it. And it has nothing to do with with the fact that they like me any more than they did, which I don't think they do. It has nothing to do with Dan liking me more or less than he did because I don't know that he likes me more or less than he did five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It just has to do with wanting to create good content for you all and for the people who listen. He answers, so it's not that Dan doesn't have a boss, by the way, he does. And he thinks of it this way. You guys are his boss. He does this to you and answers to you and wants to be true to you all. And that's what makes him so extraordinary at what he does. So that actually brings me to another question. Um, before this interview, I was actually listening to the interview you did on Nothing Personal with Pablo. And you kind of alluded to this, that the whole incident at Moss Miami, you know, fuck you to the crowd, stuff like that. You kind of pinned that on Pablo, but never really got into the details of what exactly Pablo did to kind of spur you on there. Would you like to elaborate on, uh, on that part of the story? Pablo and I were, were together at that event. And we were having fun and enjoying, and then there was work to do. And uh, I was, I knew I was going on stage, and I knew that I was going to be a part of the onstage part of the show. And I think the, you know, I'm so far past that at this moment, but as I look back on it, and I think it was two years ago, if I had to guess, although I can't remember exactly when it was, I think the confusion is, again, that people reacted in a way that Dan was worried that there would be an impact to him and his show by being associated with someone who would treat Miami that way because of his love of Miami. And he played that card. And there was, uh, after that 
episode, um, we had to do an entire show on it the next day, which was great content. And that's the important thing to remember. What, what he's trying to do, what we're all trying to do for you is just give you great content every single day of the week for hours on end. And that is not an, an easy lift. So I want to press you on this. True or false, Pablo Torre basically encouraged you to go up and troll that Miami crowd for content. False. So what was his role in that then? Uh, he he made sure that I was in the right frame of mind to entertain the audience. Okay, so he was he, he was feeding you drinks all night then is basically <laughs> the reading between the lines there. The very blurred lines of Moss Miami. I was not, so I have never performed drunk, uh, and I wouldn't perform drunk. Gotcha. There is, there is, a, there is a fine line, but it's an important one, uh, between performing drunk and having some drinks and then going to perform. All right. Fair enough. Glad we could uh, glad we could clear that up. Um, I want to switch to a topic that's not quite as fun to talk about, but it is very timely. Um, as I'm sure you're very well aware, the whole Mets situation, firing their GM for some unsolicited sexual text messages that seem to conclude in a dick pic to a female reporter in 2016. And I'm just curious, as someone who has worked in that high level of sports, I'm just wondering how pervasive that sort of thing is in your experience. Maybe not necessarily to that level, but just kind of that abuse of power or toxic masculinity in that arena of sports. I think that we are all foolish if we say anything other than men in a, in a testosterone-filled atmosphere where egos are stroked constantly, where genuflecting occurs daily, it is very difficult to avoid feeling as though you are above the fray. To be above the fray means that you can act in a way without consequence. To be above the fray means that there are a different set of rules that apply to you versus other people. What we're seeing now is a reckoning, which is the leveling off of the playing field in terms of who's above the fray and who's not. In this day and age, a president of a team, a GM, an owner, a player, an agent, none of them are above the fray the way we all used to be. And if anyone out there thinks that Jared Porter is the only executive in all of the four major sports who had or, or in Hollywood or anyone who has a quote unquote public facing job, if anyone thinks that he's the only person who has done that, uh, you're just sorely mistaken. So let's just clarify when I say done that. I'm not talking about the penis picture. Doing that is thinking that no one would say no to me. When I want something, I'm going to get it, whether it's a ticket to an event, whether it's an opportunity to meet someone I want to meet, whether it's I, I, I'm a girl or a boy or both and saying I want to be with that person now, tonight. The number of people who believe that that is acceptable is many. 
The difference now is the toler- the tolerance for it is decreasing, thank God. Well, I guess the, the question is if it's if it is as widespread as you say, and you know, this day of reckoning is coming. Um, I guess, where do those two points intersect in that we actually start seeing some real tangible change so that stories like this become, um, you know, the exception rather than the rule? Because it does seem like this is a pretty widespread issue, um, not, not just not across sports. It's not going to change that way, though. Let, let's be clear on something. Since the beginning of time, there have been people who have abused power in order to get what they want from someone who has the A, ability to give it, and B, the inability not to give it. And those are two different things, by the way. Mm -hmm. And that's been going on for hundreds of years. I'm not sure that's going away anytime soon. What I'm saying the day of reckoning is that the tolerance for it, which used to exist as just, oh, that's just boys being boys, right? That was the expression. Oh, how many times did you text her? 60? Well, you got to try her again. She's going to answer one of these times, right? The tolerance for that is decreasing. And that, if it keeps going down and down and down, and then maybe there's a more level playing field. And by the way, this is mostly, mostly against women. But it also happens to men, men with men. It also on occasion happens women to woman, woman to man. We're talking about the abuse of power and position. And that's what I hope can decrease to the point where it's so not tolerated that the minute it happens, that person is quote unquote canceled. And we may be seeing it because it happened to Jared. Well, I ask you that question specifically just because you are someone who has been in a position of power, much greater power and status than I probably will ever achieve. Never say never. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, And, you know, to my knowledge, you don't have any sort of thing like this in your history. And so there must have been some governor there that kept you from doing something like this. And I'm just curious, like, is there anything that can, you know, I guess translate from person to person who is in that strata of power and influence or if this really is just like a case-by-case basis do you know that when i was a freshman in college i had a job and it was soliciting people for the annual fund of the school i went to freshman year called tufts university and i would call first-time donors and meaning people who had never donated to tufts before the commission structure was such that i could make the most money of anybody by calling on people who had never given because the assumption is anyone who's never given is never going to give. And if you call them and you get them to give 10 bucks, we'll pay you a huge commission because anything we get is more than what we expected. And I would make hundreds and hundreds of calls and I would be told, no, get hung up on, get sworn at people who hated the school or didn't want to give because of their position on, on wars or politics or sports or whatever. And I never got offended by no's. I was actually okay with no's because it meant I could hang up and make the next phone call to find the yes. So what you're talking about, have I tried to get something that maybe I could only get because I was the president of a team? Yeah, of course. But when the answer was no, I moved on to the next ask. So, hey, I'd like to go see Springsteen. Okay, I'd like to meet Springsteen. 
No, I don't then continue to text or to call to say, no, no, can I meet Springsteen? No, no, I wanna meet Springsteen. No, no, let me meet Springsteen, right? So the ability to move on, I think is, is something that uh, um, Jared must've been lacking if, if in fact he sent 62 texts without a response. I think he just wasn't versed in ghosting and what that means and when to move on. And I'm not making light of this in any way. What he did was try to use his powerful position to get someone to do something they didn't want to do and make them feel as though they couldn't do their job if they didn't do it. And that is textbook harassment. It is textbook misogyny. And that is why the Mets had no choice but to fire him. In addition, Steve Cohn as the new owner had no choice but to fire him because Steve Cohn, his old his firm that bears his name, has been accused of sexual harassment and sexual discrimination and sexual misconduct. And it was an issue that owners had with him. So he had to be very clear that he was going to act swiftly and sternly in order to make everyone realize that it's a brand new day for Steve Cohn. So sticking with sexual harassment, I want to talk about Donald Trump really quick. We are recording this podcast for full disclosure on the very night of Donald Trump's final full day in office. Tomorrow, Joe Biden is going to be sworn in as president, and the nation will hopefully move forward with some semblance of normalcy. And David, you've been really public saying that you voted for Trump in 2016, but you could not support him in 2020 after everything that transpired throughout that first term. And it seems like you have generally conservative leanings, at least fiscally. And so I'm just kind of curious in a broad sense, like if Trump's time as president has made you reconsider your beliefs on like a macro scale and I guess where you see yourself fitting in American politics moving forward. Wow, that is it. That's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. It, it, and I, I do a lot of these for people because I enjoy um, doing them. I really do. And, and I must tell you, that is a, a good question. And I'm going to answer it for you. I am mostly fiscally conservative. And I am mostly socially liberal. And I say mostly because my mind is open to anything once I learn more and understand two sides, and that's what informs me when I'm doing nothing personal, trying to get people both sides of an argument so they can then make their own decision. If you're asking me, will I ever support a Republican? And again, the answer is yes. If you're asking me, will I ever support a Democrat? Again, the answer is yes. I'm a registered independent for the simple reason that I am not a down the ballot straight line voter. I, I, educate myself on every candidate and figure out who I want to represent me and who's closest to what I want for myself and for my family and for the people I care about, for the people I don't care about, for the people who I know, for the people I don't know. I'm not a one-issue voter at all. While I am extremely vocal on certain issues and extremely opinionated on certain issues, I'm not a one-issue voter. What I hope happens going forward and the reason why, by the way, today was Trump's last full day. Tomorrow at 11.59 a.m. is when he's done being president. And at noon, Joe Biden will be president. It's that what I didn't like about President Trump is more than the policies, I felt the procedures were so off-putting and embarrassing and shocking uh, that 
he was not able to properly be president. The inability to, by, by the way, the number one issue, right? Racism. Um, that is a major problem for me. I've always been, um, I've never said this publicly. I would say that I have prejudice and it's against stupid, right? I don't see color. And that's why people ask me about when I'm hiring managers or, or looking at players or hiring executives. I don't see color. I see dollar signs. Who can help me make the most money? That's what I care about. Who can help me win the most games or make the most money? Why would I ever not hire a person of color if they had an ability over and somebody else? It wouldn't even occur to me, right? That the level of racism that exists in the U.S. is so upsetting and it exists around the world. And, and as a Jewish person, I certainly have been subject to anti-Semitism before. And um, I, I cannot comprehend a world where someone is so insecure that they need to rid the world of people who don't think like them or look like them. And, you know, that's what the Holocaust was. That's what genocide is. And that's what racists do, right? They don't want anyone that doesn't look like them or talk like them or think like them or act like them. And I've always been the opposite, right? I want as many people around me who can do what I can't do, who think like I don't think, because that's how I'm going to get more. If I just surround myself with people who look like me and think like me and talk like me and do the things I do, how am I being good in business? It just doesn't make sense to me. So I, I, can't, I couldn't deal and I, I, I wasn't aware that, that he would be like this as a president um, and, and exhibit these, these tendencies, not just of racism, but of, of, of rooting for people to be racist. It's so unbelievable to me that uh, that was it. And then, of course, there were, there were myriad other issues that, that went into everything that I do and everything I decide. But that, to me, was... The number one. I mean, immigration's right up there. Can you imagine not wanting to, you know, be a country where, of course, you know, you you need immigrants because they make your country better. They, they don't take anything away from people who are white and were born here, right? It just, it, none of it makes sense to me. And I want to stick on another serious topic. This one is near and dear to my heart personally. Um, I am someone who has dealt with an anxiety disorder ever since I was mm -hmm. a teenager, um, and it has been Sorry. just a massive part of my life ever since. Um, you've been public talking about how up until about relatively recently, I think within the past couple of years or so, that you had a fear of the dark. Mm -hmm. And I am curious how that anxiety affected your life and I guess how you overcame it, and then if you still have any lingering phobias or fears that you're still dealing with to this day. Oh, I do. I mean, I, I've been pretty vocal that, that I, I love therapy. I'm in therapy. I think it's, it's important. Um, and it's got this weird stigma. Again, that's something I don't get, right? Why is it that I think that I can solve every issue going on in my brain and I don't need help? And if I do need help, I'm afraid to get it because I'm afraid that people will judge me. Where getting the help makes me better, makes me more efficient, makes me stronger, makes me smarter. So I'll stand on the top of a mountain to say that therapy is critical if you believe that you are more capable 
of doing more than you're doing. And there are things that can be identified that are stopping you from accomplishing what you want. And I have an insatiable desire to accomplish. Um, I'm like, like a, an adrenaline junkie. It's never enough for me. Um, and I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the, the rush I get of success and the craving I have for failure because I know after failure comes success and that frame of reference is critical. And so therapy has been important to me always because I couldn't handle by myself how to, how to get through my panic attacks and it was stopping me. I never told this story. I had to leave a meeting with Governor Jeb Bush as I was trying to get state money for a ballpark. I had to tell the governor that I had to leave a meeting and I went to the rotunda outside of his office and I basically was in the fetal position in a complete sweat because I had an uncontrollable panic attack and there was nothing I could do. I didn't have the um, the arrows in my quiver to deal with it. And that is when I realized that I'm getting worse, not better, and I'll need to figure out how to deal with it. And that's when I upped my therapy level and really tried to get it under control. In terms of phobias, um, that, that's a longer question. And I don't want to take too much of your time on this. <laughs> phobias are tougher to deal with, right? Because yeah. to you, to me, my phobias were not phobias. They were facts, right? It, it's not that there could be a monster in the closet. There was. It's not that there could be someone in the dark looking at me while I'm trying to sleep. There was someone. So it's not a phobia. To me, it was an absolute and it was illogical for someone to tell me that it's not true because my brain told me not only is it true, but it's happening in real time to you. And I was able to work through it by um, sort of testing my hypotheses. I mean, now we're getting pretty technical, but on the therapy side, that's what it was. I was told you've got to test your hypotheses. So I would spend many a night with the light off, turning it on every 10 seconds testing to see, well, I, I, I know someone's there, turn the light on, no one's there. I know someone's in the closet. I'm looking in the closet every minute. There's no one there. So testing the hypotheses was something that I was taught to do. And eventually when you test a hypothesis enough and you're wrong every single time, you retrain your brain. At least this is, I'm not giving therapeutic advice right now. This is what worked for me. I retrain my brain to say, I don't need to turn the light on and off because what my brain is telling me is true turns out not to be true. And yeah, again, n nothing you're saying is, you know, hard and fast therapeutic advice. But I will say, as someone who's gone through his fair share of therapies, a lot of what you're saying is actually very heartening to me because it mirrors a lot of the things that my current therapist has said to me. Um, so it's good to hear that we're getting similar advice and that it has Have been... You, oh, sorry, ever run a Have you ever run a marathon? No, um, I used to be a runner. I now have two bad Achilles tendons. The furthest I could ever get was a 10-miler competitively. Okay, so the way I view therapy is it's like running a marathon. You, you need to train. And when you run a marathon, you're training your body and your legs and your, your heart and, and your Achilles and every part of your body you are training for the work that it takes to run 26.2 miles. Um, phobias and anxiety is like that. You need to train your brain because if you don't, 
train your brain. It's the same thing as going to run a marathon without training and just sitting on the couch and eating candy and cookies all day. If you then go to run a marathon the next day, your body will revolt and you won't be able to do it because you didn't train your body to do it. If you don't train your brain, and that's what therapy has always been for me is training my brain. How could you expect to get better or improve any of the issues that you have with your brain? And so I take the training of my brain as seriously as I take the training of my body. All right. That was a fantastic answer. I'm really glad we had that part of the conversation, but I'm afraid it got a bit too heavy. So I want to dumb down this conversation just a little bit, if that's okay with you. Of course. All right. Complete change of topic. I want to talk something Marlins related. Specifically, I want to talk about Homer, the beautiful but dis- divisive sculpture that used to sit in center field. Um, I'm just curious, what has David Sampson made of the shitstorm surrounding Homer's mere existence and Derek Jeter's process to get it removed from the inside of the stadium? It's a disgrace what Derek Jeter did. And here's why. Forget, and this is not personal. Here's the, here's the concept. And I'm guilty of it too. Even though I didn't agree with it, it was under my watch. When number five got retired by Wayne Huizinga of the Marlins, that was a number retired for Carl Barger, who was the first president of the team. Uh, before they even played a game, he died. And so the Marlins retired number five and no player wore number five. Wayne Huizinga sells the team to John Henry. John Henry sells the team to Jeffrey Loria. Logan Morrison comes up and tells Jeffrey Loria he wants to wear number five. And Jeffrey Loria says, no problem, we'll unretire it. And what I said to him at the time is, the problem with unretiring a number is that anything that we do that is permanent or that we want to be permanent as part of a, our legacy, we are making it okay for the next owner to do that. So lo and behold, Jeter takes over the team and forgetting his lack of qualification, forgetting all of the things that we all know about Derek Jeter now, none of which matter to me anymore at all. Um, he's not in my orbit and never will be again. And, and I'm the lucky one there. <laughs> the reality is that he so badly wanted to rid himself of anything that was Jeffrey Loria or David Sampson related that he used his godlike powers and this goes back to how people can feel when they're always told yes, to go to the county of Miami and say, I don't like the home run sculpture. I don't want anything associated with the last ownership group. Get rid of that sculpture. And the county, because of their relationship with Derek Jeter and because it was Derek Jeter, agreed to allow that home run sculpture to be moved. Why am I upset about it? because it was called art in public places. That sculpture, as well as other art in the ballpark, that is a public stadium owned by the public. And as part of the rules in Miami, every public building has art. And, it, and there is a process that is used by the county to choose which art goes where. That home run sculpture was developed by Red Grooms. It was suggested and applied for by Red Grooms to the county, not to me, not to Jeffrey. The county chose Red Grooms to put that sculpture in the ballpark, not Jeffrey, not David. And then the minute Jeffrey and David are gone, the next temporary owner, which is what Jeter is, that's all he is. He's holding the baton just like I did, except I'll bet you a dollar he's not the president for 16 seasons as I was. 
He's just holding the baton for the next guy. And there will be a next guy. If you let a private individual use his taste of art to dictate the removal of what is a public piece of art, then you are defeating the entire purpose of art in public places, which by definition does not appeal to everyone. That's why it's art. That's the beautiful thing about art. But it's there because it was there for a reason. And a private person should not be able to say, I don't like that. Therefore, we'll get rid of it. And that's what happened with Homer. So I am disappointed because it was iconic and it was beautiful. And I was proud of it as a piece of art in public places. And now it's gone. So leading up to this interview, I was scoping out your old Survivor profile. And in there was a blurb about how after you finished your Iron Man, um, one of the, I think, I believe it was the first meal that you had after it was all done is you went to McDonald's. And I'm just a little bit curious about, you know, A, what does an Iron Man meal at McDonald's look like? <laughs> but B... What is David Sampson's go-to fast food chain and order? So when I was a kid, uh, I would eat McDonald's. I'd get two quarter pounders with cheese, a large fry, and a chocolate shake. McDonald's was my favorite restaurant of all time. And it was a reward for doing well in school and, and behaving when I wouldn't. The opposite of being punished for me was being allowed to go to McDonald's. Then as I got older, I used to go to McDonald's at the end of a night of partying as a way to reward myself for partying, I guess. I don't know why I would do it. <laughs> and then when I started getting in shape and, and running and doing endurance events, I actually started eating at McDonald's maybe once a year. Uh, and that's it. And I have not had McDonald's. I want to say it's in five to 10 years is the last time I had McDonald's. Uh, in terms of fast food, if you count Chipotle as fast food, I've had that maybe once or twice in the last five years at most. If you count pizza as fast food, then I have that every day. Um, I love <laughs> My pizza. man. Um, sushi can be fast food. Salad bars can be fast food. So it's not that I'm against fast food, meaning it comes quickly. I've just become healthier because it, there's a very simple reason for it. And it's addition to body dysmorphia, which is a, a deep conversation for another time. It's ego and vanity. As I've gotten older, uh, my metabolism has made it so um, eating McDonald's would mean I'd have to run like 50 miles the next day just to break even. And it, the juice is just not worth the squeeze anymore. So I need to know what David Sampson is ordering on his pizza. Onion and garlic. That's it? Onion and garlic? Onion and garlic. I will eat. I don't eat pork, so I've never had sausage. I've never had pepperoni in my life, actually. Um, so I will eat cheese pizza. Uh, but in, in New, it's got to be real New York pizza to eat cheese. Like at Ray's, I'll eat cheese pizza. But other than that, I will put onions and garlic on or in a stuffed pizza. Would you ever consider eating chicken on a pizza? And I know that can sound a little strange, but please yes. take it from me that it is delicious. Of course I would. I've had chicken parm pizza before. Oh, oh chicken um, parm pizza. Nice. I do not like pineapple on pizza. Um, that sort of nauseates me, that sort of sweet taste on top of a pizza. But I eat jalapenos and I'll eat vegetable pizza. I just don't eat olives. That's my hate food. And uh, so I won't eat that under any scenario. If it's even touching a vegetable on the pizza, I won't eat the pizza or anything around it. But uh, pizza is my go-to. It's my favorite. I'd say pizza, sushi um, are, are my two top favorite foods. 
Well, I can officially say that David Sampson and I share the same food, and moreover, it seems like we actually share similar sensibilities on what should and shouldn't be on a pizza. So I'm very happy to hear that. David, I cannot thank you enough for your time. You've been very gracious with your time for us here tonight. Um, Please uh, plug um, Nothing Personal. Please plug your podcast, any other projects you have coming up. Please let the people know what David Sampson has going on. So thanks for listening all the way through the show. I appreciate it. It's been great. I have a show called Nothing Personal with David Sampson. It's every day. And there's really no BS. We just talk about issues that are interesting to you, to me, that are trending. It's sports. It's entertainment. It's politics. We'll review a movie or a TV series every day. We'll talk about culture. We'll talk about things that are interesting. And you'll think and I'll think. And together, we'll get through 45 minutes a day. And you can find it wherever you uh, have your, your, pod, get your podcast. Just subscribe and download it and tell your friends. And we're also, it's a video show. So it's videoed as well. And we have a YouTube channel called Nothing Personal with David Sampson on YouTube. You can find it there. And the best part is we don't edit it. Whatever mistakes I make, whatever coffee and I do, or whatever, whatever happens, you're going to see it. So it is uh, unfiltered, unshackled, and unedited. Love it. Well, David, thank you again so much. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Yep, you as well. That'll do it for this episode. Again, a big thanks to David Sampson for joining us. You know the deal, people. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on Twitter at Lebitard underscore fan. We'll be back again next week with a new episode. So until then, stay safe and stay well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.